Now, please open your Bibles to 1 Kings this afternoon. We're continuing to, we finished pretty much, not completely, the life of David. And now we, last week, moved to uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, where we saw that David set Solomon apart as king. One of the things that's not mentioned in 1 Kings, that is mentioned in uh, 1 Chronicles, which is more or less a parallel book uh, to 1 Kings. I mean to, uh, yeah, 1 Kings. And that is that um, before David ended his life on earth, even right before he crowned Solomon king, and then right after he crowned Solomon king, he gave extensive directions to Solomon about the building of the kingdom and the building of the temple. The physical temple. Remember, uh, if you remember from last time, I mentioned that the, the first tabernacle that came out of Egypt had been set up in Gibeon, and, um, but the Ark of the Covenant was not in it because it had been stolen by the Philistines. Well, David recovered the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into Jerusalem, uh, into his city, the city of David. And he built a tent there so that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where um, on top of it was the mercy seat of God, inside of it were the ten words, um, where God was worshipped and where the high priest went in once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices for the sins of the people. So there were two tabernacles set up, and David wanted to see one place of worship. And, and so in First Chronicles chapters uh, 2 and following up to 21, um, the kingdom of... Uh, it is recorded how David gathered all the materials, the riches, the gold, the silver, the cedar trees... Uh, from Lebanon, um, the craftsmen, the bronze, the metal crafters, um, all of the uh, materials that were necessary to build a permanent house of worship, a permanent uh, place where God's, uh, God would be worshipped by Israel according to the Mosaic laws, and the sacrifices would be made, and the, um, the Ark of the Covenant would sit uh, in the inner tent of the Holy of Holies and, and God would be worshipped. So he instructs Solomon how to do that. He gives him the plans, he gives him the materials that are stored up, and not much of that is covered in First um, and Second Samuel and First Kings. So I just wanted to mention that as something to consider because the temple and its being built was a major project and a major purpose of Solomon's kingship. So after seeing last week that David set up Solomon as king against the rebellion of Adonijah, uh, David's other son, um, Solomon became king, and it says uh, in verse 53 of chapter 1, so King Solomon sent and brought him, that is Adonijah, down from the altar. Adonijah had fled to the altar of God, took 
hold of the horns of the altar so they wouldn't kill him in the temple. And um, King Solomon sent and brought him down from the altar and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon and Solomon said to him, go to your house. So Solomon showed a great deal of mercy at the very beginning of his kingship to his brother Adonijah. And then we begin in 1 Kings chapter 2. So let us read verses 1 through 12. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, Your sons are careful, if your sons are careful in their way to walk before me in truth and with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, who was uh, the son of Ner, who was the general of the armies of Israel, under Saul and then under David, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. That was the king, I mean the general that uh, David replaced, uh, uh, did use to replace Joab. Joab killed him. Uh, And to um, Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, he also shed the blood of war in peace. And he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on his sandals on his feet. So act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. Show kindness to the sons of Barzilla the Gileadite and let them be among those who eat at your table. For they assisted me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And behold, there is with you Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore go, do not let him go unpunished, For you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. Then David slept with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were forty years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and thirty-three years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we read the history of Israel, which you ordained step by step. 
We thank you for bringing up David to be a king after God's own heart. And for his long reign of 40 years, in spite of times of disobedience and sin, that you kept him to the end as you promised and brought forth his son Solomon to continue the line of David till Christ was born in Bethlehem. So help us to respect the history, to learn from the history of your faithfulness, to learn from the history, the sinfulness of even believers and how they can fall into great sin against God. And yet, we find you keeping your promise in spite of such failures, which encourages us that living under the blood and righteousness of Christ, living with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, living with the completed Word of God, which David never knew, we ask that you would strengthen our faith to persevere to the end, to be faithful to the end, to take seriously every step we take as a step bringing glory to God or not. And we pray that you would be with Miss Kathy and comfort her in the death of her sister, Bonnie, uh, with those who in, in the church that are dealing with illness and sickness, we ask that you spare their life, Lord. We ask that you would help us to rejoice every day that you've given us breath and life and all things when you didn't have to. That you owed us nothing and gave us everything in Christ. Help us to think clearly as Christians. When we speak, when we think, when we act, to bring honor to the one who shed his blood for us and to the Father who gave us, gave him for us. Now forgive give us of our sins, and as Mitch preached this morning, help us to love one another as Christ first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we look at First uh, Kings chapter 2, and we see that the time of David's death did draw near. And <clears throat> much of First uh, Kings is is dealing with the reign of Solomon. And Solomon, uh, in many ways, succeeded more than David did. David established the kingdom against enemies and, and established the government and the stability. Uh, he even made plans for worship. But uh, Solomon came in after David and extended the kingdom of Israel uh, far beyond what David had done. The kingdom of Israel extended all the way down to Egypt, all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, and over to the Euphrates River, and was uh, the most stable kingdom after David that, had, that any of the other kings of Israel had. And so Solomon's kingdom is looked upon by the Jews as being uh, the epitome of success. Everyone had plenty to eat. The armies had plenty of success. King Solomon was the wisest king in the earth and administered his kingdom with wisdom and compassion and faithfulness and justice. And so everything seemed wonderful under Solomon. 
In Jesus' day, they were still looking for a Messiah to come who would be like unto David, but also like unto Solomon. They had this vision of reconquering the land and the kings and the kingdoms around them in the first century. That the Messiah would come, the son of David, like Solomon, and would uh, give them rest for their enemies, prosperity uh, in their lands, um, that the worship of God would be instituted in a more uh, pure way than it had been by the, the priest up to that point. But one of the things that's interesting about Solomon is that the Bible clearly says he is a type of Jesus Christ. Now we saw that David is a type of Jesus Christ. He was the, the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel. Um, David made plans to build the temple of God. Jesus made plans to build the temple. Um, David was a man after God's own heart, yet sinful. Jesus was a man after God's own heart and never sinned. We, we see the com contrast and comparison of David and Jesus as type and antitype. The form and the fulfillment uh, very clearly. But Solomon was also a type of Christ. Turn with me to um, Ephesians, I mean uh, Luke chapter 11. Actually, uh, Mitch read this in Matthew this morning, but Luke chapter 11, verse 29. And just to uh, back up a bit in verse 27, it came about when he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, that is to Jesus, Blessed are you, is the womb that bore you and the breast which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah. Remember uh, Mitch mentioning that this morning. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Verse 31, the queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation. That would be the queen of Sheba that came up to see Solomon in all his glory, to hear his wisdom, to see his riches, and uh, it says, The queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. That is, those who were around Jesus that didn't believe in him. They will rise up and condemn them at the judgment. <clears throat> because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And he was speaking of himself. Solomon was wise, but in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon built a huge kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is greater than any kingdom Solomon built. Solomon built this beautiful temple of worship. 
which David had planned for. Jesus has built a greater temple and is continuing to build it today. A temple where God dwells. A temple where God is worshipped. A temple where God is present with His people all the time and never leaves or forsakes them again. So this afternoon what I want to do is take a broader look at Solomon than just these first few verses where he is introduced as the new king, um, the one who is uh, to follow David upon David's death, and he takes, he takes the throne in rule. Um, I want us to compare Solomon and Christ and learn more about our Lord through this comparison, this type and antitype approach. But we're also going to see Solomon's failures, which Jesus never failed in, a, in one. Um, so it's kind of an overview of Solomon's reign without going through all of the chapters uh, this afternoon uh, one by one to see what Solomon did. So first of all, we can see that Jesus was greater than Solomon. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. He was greater than Solomon in his wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 3, um, beginning at verse 5, God appeared to Solomon. It says in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, except that he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Now those are the places of pagan worship. And the king went to Gibeon in verse 4 to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. So Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar in Gibeon, not in Jerusalem, but Gibeon. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and said, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee. And thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for magnitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil, for, those, for who is able to judge the great people of thine. And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God gave to him, said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and not have asked for uh, yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, 
but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, there, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you or before you, nor, like one at, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there may not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And so God appeared to Solomon um, in Gibeon when he went up there to offer sacrifices, a thousand sacrifices on the burnt offering. God appeared to him. And um, he said, ask what, ask what you wish me to give you. And what would you have asked at that point? So basically God is saying to Solomon, anything you want in this life, in this world, you may have. What would you wish? Well, many times our minds would go to material things. It would be easy to say, let me have enough money to live and not worry about money and a nice house to live in and protection from sickness and, and all my enemies. Just let me have a happy, contented, peaceful life. Or we might, uh, if we were further along the way in Christ, we might say, please don't let me sin again. <laughs> Because I hate sin, and I hate what my sins did to my Lord Jesus on the cross, and I want to honor Him in my life. Let me not sin again and hurt anybody else and bring grief to your heart, O oh God. There may be a lot of things we might wish. We might say, I wish I could be free of this situation. I wish that my life could change and not have to deal with these things that are happening in my life right now. And all of those ultimately would be for one's own pleasure or good. But that's not what Solomon asked. He asked for discernment, understanding, for wisdom. And we, we see in the rest of the... Uh, Bible that God answered Solomon's prayer and request for wisdom. He wrote the whole book of Proverbs, which is the inspired, God-inspired wisdom of how to live in this world. Proverbs is in perfect unity with the Ten Commandments and is built upon them and gives very practical wisdom on how to live how to discern whether a person is for you or against you. How to look into your own heart and find a heart that is pure toward God, one that is really desiring to honor Him in everything, though you're not able to do anything perfectly. It talks about how you handle your finances, how you handle friendships, 
what happens when you encounter an angry man. Or you yourselves find yourself angry and sinful. The Proverbs of Solomon are inspired by God and everyone is true and perfect. And the Lord Jesus Christ understood them all and kept them all himself. So when you want to say, how does Jesus think? You go to Proverbs and he thought like that. He also thought like the Ten Commandments all the time and his Father's will for him to be Messiah all the way to the cross and thereafter. So the wisdom of Solomon that God gave him was very important to us still. And he gave him also a thousand and five songs, some of which are in the book of Psalms for us. So um, Solomon was, had huge accomplishments in his kingship. And um, he was looked upon also as a godly man who sought to walk in the statutes of, of Moses, the law of Moses, as a king should, and uh, was honored by all for a long, long time of his 40-year reign. The Queen of Sheba from, we believe, Ethiopia came up from the south just to hear his wisdom, to sit in his courtroom and listen to him make judgments between the people or to teach certain proverbs. So Solomon's great in his wisdom, but our Lord Jesus is greater because he doesn't just learn wisdom, he is wisdom to learn. He is everything. He himself is everything. He is perfect in his understanding of everything. He knows the heart of everyone, the mind and thinking of everyone because He is God and able to do that. He loves His sheep and He uses almighty power as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule their lives and to cause all things to work together for good in their lives to those who love Him so that they can learn to be content in whatever circumstances they are and give praise to God for the little things, the good things that most people don't even notice. Colossians 2, Paul says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. When I was in college in my second year, by my second year, I had taken courses in philosophy, psychology, sociology, world religions, anthropology, and education. And I sincerely studied each subject, looking for answers to life. I was unsteady in what I believed about Christ, and so I was looking everywhere for truth. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I? Do I exist? Have you ever had that thought? 
Well, when you go through the crazy classes I had, you had to think about whether you really exist. And then you had to decide, well, since I'm thinking about I exist, I guess I do. There's all kinds of crazy things you have to think through in college. Saying, what is true? What's the meaning of life? But because of the lifestyle of my professors, which I observed, there was within my mind and heart the remaining work of God to tell me there is a good and there is an evil. There is truth and there is falsehood. And so God would not leave me alone until I found out the truth. And as I entered the education building at Auburn, carved in granite above the door were these words. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now I knew those were the words of Jesus. I believe they thought that education would make you free. But they stuck in my mind. You shall know the truth. The truth can be known, Jesus said. And not only that, it can make you free, whatever that meant. There can be a blessing in your life through knowing the truth. And I started to research his life and his words again after not doing so for quite a long time. And the Lord opened my heart to believe that His words were so much wiser and good than my professors that there was no comparison. And not only that, that the historical record of His life was a good life. A life of kindness to the poor and to sinners. A kind of mercy to those who were afflicted or to those who had sinned themselves into a corner that he ate and drank with sinners, that he went to the cross, he said, to bear the sins of his people and to set them free. None of my professors could match him for wisdom or for pure living or for whatever love is. But they would ridicule him and his followers and his churches at the drop of a hat. So then I was faced, having found that Jesus was a better man than any of them, and that his words were powerful and true and consistent within each other, which theirs were not even consistent. I was faced with the resurrection. None of my teachers rose from the dead. What if he did? His wisdom has final authority because of who he is and what he did. He rose from the dead to prove that he was sent from God, the invisible God to earth, to be the visible manifestation of God's nature, God's thinking, and God's goodness and mercy to sinners. That's why he said, He that, he that sees me sees the Father. And so I began to understand something of why He came. And I found out there is such a thing as good and evil. 
No one wants to be murdered. Therefore, it's wrong for them to murder. No one wants to be stolen from, so it's wrong for them to steal. No one wants to be lied to. It's wrong for them to lie. There there is within man's heart by nature and the scripture by, by writing, there is such a thing as good and evil. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And Jesus Christ is right about all of it. How do we know that these things are right and wrong? And the answer of the Bible is because one greater than Solomon is here. He's not just man, he's God. They are proven to be true because of his authority and character to teach them. No other teacher carries his holy nature and his love as it was displayed to the disciples for years. No other has proved his love by dying for sinners in their place. Great teachers may have died, but they did not die to atone for the sins of their followers. But he did. He has, he has bought us with a price. We are his. We aren't ours anymore. We may have a home, but it's God's home. We may have children, but they're God's children. We may have a mind, but it's God's mind for us to think after His thoughts, not our own sinful thoughts. Our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to be obeyed no matter how you feel. And in the last 200 years, there's been a rise of the emphasis on feeling in religion in the entire world. And in that rise of having an experience of feeling that God is close to you or you are close to God, seeking whatever means, whatever self-denial, whatever you can do to feel that way. After 200 years now of that being sneaking its way into... Um, all, all religions, but especially Christianity, we look at Jesus and, and we hear him say, he that believes in me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We can know that. Here's Jesus who said, I will never leave you, forsake you to the end of the world. I will be with you. Here is Jesus who said, I will teach you the truth and the truth will set you free. Love your enemy. Love one another. That's what life is about. Love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our Lord Jesus Christ had greater wisdom than Solomon. And it does us right to study His words in detail. Not lightly to read over the Sermon of the Mount, but what does each word of Jesus mean? Each verse, each teaching, 
What does it mean when he says you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time? What does it mean when he says judge not and condemn others lest you be judged and condemned yourself? For in the way you judge, you shall be judged. To study the words of Jesus is to study pure, absolute truth from God that is more wise than anything you can think and reason out by yourself or feel or follow a teacher on earth that is better than Jesus. No such thing. So do you study His words regularly and try to gain the wisdom? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me today where I live? And let God's Word dwell richly in you, which is what Paul exhorted Christians. Let it dwell richly in you. Let it remain richly in you to think about, to pray about, and to apply. How does it... How do, what does it say about the way I treat my spouse, my parents, about the way I treat the people at work, the way I think about the people at church? Little by little, as the words of Jesus come into our minds and hearts and, and the Holy Spirit illumines us, we make step by step a greater conformity to love to God and man and one another and our enemies and become Christ-like. So Solomon was great in his wisdom, but Jesus is greater. And the sooner we listen more to Jesus and His truth than the men of this world and the women of this world and what they think is true truth, the sooner our souls will be fed our relationship to God will be more comforting and sure and we will have direction in what to do and say and think. So one greater than Solomon is here in his wisdom. But Jesus also is greater in building the temple of God than Solomon. One of the interesting things in 1 Kings and and, uh, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles is the detail, the detail that God gave to build the temple of Solomon. First he had great detail in building the tabernacle under Moses, but now under Solomon. The great detail, the, the plans that were drawn out, the, the amount of materials that were brought in from all over the world Gold and silver and trees and, and all kinds of things uh, to, to build for the temple a place that would be glorious. It was said of Solomon's temple that when you looked at it a certain way reflecting the sun's rays, it would almost blind you. There was so much gold on the temple. that it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And people would come from all over the world to see Solomon's temple and its riches and its glory. 
So Solomon built his temple of riches and furnishings and a fit place for the God of the universe to have a place to sit and dwell on earth. And every time I go through the tabernacle teachings and how they planned it, how they built it, down to the very, <laughs> every piece of linen, uh, curtain, every, every piece of wood, every uh, molding of silver or gold. It's so detailed and it's so rich and wealthy. There is no telling how much today it would cost to actually rebuild it as it was built by Solomon. It was the place where God, who built the universe out of nothing, would sit and relate to men on earth. Where people could come, namely his people, and as it were talk to God, or see the, the supernatural light that was shining most of the time, if not all the time, that was shining in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, that God was sitting on his throne on earth, full of mercy and truth. And so there's this great temple was so glorious. But in Ephesians 2, as we read, we are the temple of the living God. We are better than the Old Testament temple. Because we do not just dwell in a build, God does not just dwell in a building and be approached by certain people in prayer. He dwells in our hearts by His Holy Spirit, so that the God who created this magnificent universe that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger in people's minds, and we wonder how in the world was it made out of nothing when God just spoke, the more we understand the, the majesty and the magnitude of all the things that have been created, they are but held in the palm of His hand. And that God cares about you and me. And uses His infinite power to feed us and close us, clothe us and to bring His Son before our eyes in the New Testament to see the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we may know Him. The temple was beautiful. But there's nothing more wondrous than the eternal, infinite God of this universe has caused His Spirit to dwell in every one of you here who names the name of Christ truly and goes with you every day, everywhere you go, and is with you every night that you sleep, and is with you in every circumstance, good or difficult, that you encounter, calling you to believe in a greater way and to trust God and to love Him and keep His commandments that He's given in your life. The personal character of God's salvation is beyond any personal relationship we can ever experience on earth. I, I don't really like to go much of anywhere anymore without Debbie. And of all means, of all her character of grace, she doesn't want to go anywhere without me. Isn't that weird? I think so. 
But that's nothing compared to the companionship of God. That He is communing with us by His Spirit, knowing our thoughts, our feelings, our struggles, our sins, our disappointments, our circumstances, the confusion we feel at times, the frustration we have with ourselves and others. He knows every bit of it. And He is working to illumine our minds with the truth of Jesus Christ to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil that we face. Our Lord builds temples in human hearts. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, we present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is His spiritual service of worship each day. We transform ourselves by the renewing of our minds that we may prove that which is good and righteous and perfect. Every day we're a temple offering sacrifices to God. Our minds, our desires, our choices to bring glory to Him and honor to Him and He notices. And He forgives And He is pleased at our imperfect offerings because He has put us under grace in Christ. Yes, Solomon built a beautiful temple, but there's nothing more beautiful on earth than to see human nature changed from being dominated by sin to be dominated by love. That is the greatest miracle that exists on earth at this time. It is the most wondrous display of God's grace and power. And we are to go forth into this world as the light of the world to show what God can do in a human soul. And that's why we're to continually believe that God is not only for us, but with us all the time. If you don't feel that way, that doesn't matter because it's still true. And the more you believe that way, the more you will feel the subjective presence of God in your life. The last thing that Solomon did was he built a kingdom. And it was was really something. His administration of everything over that kingdom was just right. He protected us from the in, protected them from the enemies around them, um, and and there was peace in the land. The judges were taught by Solomon, uh, according to the proverbs and the law of Moses, to judge uh, righteously and justly. So even the courts were improved under Solomon. And he ruled over the land from Egypt to Philistia to Euphrates and gave Israel peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom is greater than Solomon's kingdom. when When you look at how Jesus established his kingdom, of which every believer is a part, it's so much different from Solomon's kingdom. 
Solomon's kingdom was built by the riches and the power that he received from King David, his father. And he built upon that, and he brought great blessing upon the land. But our Lord was born in a manger. He lived as a boy in Nazareth, helped his dad in the carpentry shop, learned to be a carpenter, was known as Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. And then he began his ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom was that which Jesus built? Well, we know from the rest of the New Testament. It is the kingdom of people who are born again by the Holy Spirit so that their whole human nature is transformed from darkness to light and they become the light of the world. All the anthropology and sociology and psychology that I studied in college could not change one human heart to love and they all disagreed with each other. But in the face of Jesus Christ, we find one who says, love comes from God. And that it is not that we love God, that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And those who believe that are transformed in heart. They see the love of God, the character of God's mercy, as well as God's justice in the death of His Son for them, and they are changed. No longer do they look at the world and its riches as that which is most important to them. You, we can't even describe the, sol the riches of Solomon, the thousands of horse stables and chariots and the wealth that was brought to him in tribute from other kingdoms just to keep him off their backs. And yet, herein we see the love of God in Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and gave himself up for us to be not only a savior from our sins, but a trustworthy, loving Lord that is wise in guiding our life and building a kingdom of men and women and children who love God and who seek to push back against the darkness of this world by loving their enemy. So Solomon came to build a kingdom, but... Paul said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us, changing us day by day, revealing our sins day by day, and reminding us of Christ day by day, and calling us to turn away from that which is wrong and put on that which is right for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than Solomon in every way. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talks about, uh, as Mitch brought out today, 
The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And the reason for that is because if you set your mind and heart on the possessions of this world and what money can buy for it, and that's, that's what rules your thinking and rules your life, you can't be thinking of Christ at that point. You can't be focusing on Him as your companion and lover of your soul. And the more you give yourself over to the riches and the desire for many things that in the world and make them your little idols in this world, the less you give your mind and your heart and your life to God to bless Him and others with your presence and ministry. You can't serve God and mammon, Jesus said. You'll hate the one and love the other. You have to serve God only in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to close, but I need to read this to you. In 1 Kings 11, which is only a few chapters from chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 say, For when it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that's disturbing to me. Because we see at the beginning of Solomon's reign him confessing his love for God and God confessing his love for Solomon. And we see the victories and the wealth and the extension of his kingdom for 40 years, but at the very beginning of his kingship, he married the daughter of Pharaoh and brought idol worship into his kingdom. And the hills around Jerusalem and Judea were still places where people came and offered sacrifice to pagan gods like the Ashtoreth and Milcom. And just those two gods, much less the others, are awful. Ashtoreth was a fertility goddess, and the worship was immoral. Milcom was also a fertility god, and the way that you made sure you had good crops next year was to sacrifice your infant son to him in the fire this year. Solomon worshipped those gods at the end. We don't learn much about Solomon's death, just that Solomon died and, and went to his father's. But all the promises of Israel's kingdom becoming a glory to the nations. For all the wealth and success of Solomon, it went down, to, down the drain as a witness to the nations around them. That God, the God of Israel, is the only true God. And Solomon, for all his teaching and wisdom and 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, no matter whether he was ultimately an unbeliever or a false professor or a, a believer who went far into sin, we don't know exactly, but the things he wrote and the things he said were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we read them today as truth. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Imperfect men, women, and children that he uses to build the eternal kingdom. But Solomon stands as a warning that as we continue to live in Christ and under the blessings he's brought to us, that we do not cease to watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. And our love for the world and things overtakes our love for Christ and holiness and Christ-likeness. That love in us grows instead of declines as we get older and more mature. That there never is a time when one who is purchased by the blood of the Son of God can relax in seeking to love God with all their heart, to love their neighbor as themselves, and to love other Christians. And to even love their enemy. Jesus is greater than Solomon. All that Solomon represented in the outward world and all of its riches and pleasures and praise that it received from countries all over the world, all of that is as absolutely nothing compared with the heart of a human soul who has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to love Christ and keep His commandments. That's what life is about, young people and children. It's about loving God and keeping His commandments because He's so good and so great to us. And that never gets old for those who believe in it. So I'll just close, close now and, and say that Solomon was great, but Jesus was greater in every way. He came to build a temple that is a true temple of worship and joy in the Holy Spirit at being saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's greater than any temple that Solomon built. And those people are a greater kingdom than any other kingdom on earth. The world will never be saved in its salvation by the kingdom of the United States or Russia or China or anybody else or Israel. The souls of the people in this world will only be saved when someone brings to them the face of Jesus Christ in the scriptures and sacrifices their life to love them and serve them and help them. And when the Holy Spirit works in those human hearts out of paganism and liberalism and every other kind of ism, it shows them the glory of Jesus Christ and His truth and what is true truth and what is true love and what is true life about, the world will be changed soul by soul. Someone has to go and tell them 
Somebody has to go and teach them. Just as somebody came to you and me and brought us the Word of God one way or another. Jesus is a great King. And His love for His bride is greater than any human love on earth because He never changes in His infinite, forgiving, loving, and serving love to His bride. The sooner we believe that, the more content we shall be and the happier we shall become. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to teach the truth about Jesus to men. Help us to live the truth of Jesus before men and women and children. I thank you for this congregation, the grace that you've displayed in saving sinners like we are and teaching us how to love you and how to love one another. It's a beautiful display of your power and goodness in the world. And I pray that you would keep us from falling as Solomon did and to remember day by day that you have chosen us for an eternal salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you've called us to live simply, to love him and keep his commandments in our lives so that we may bring you glory. Forgive us of our sins when we do not and help us to walk in love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.